think about it this way. You have a lot of real estate and, you know, you're in 1979 Afghanistan, right? You own a lot of real estate in Kabul, right? And then the Soviets come in. Who gives a shit? You, there is no particular power. This thing has no money. There is no, nothing you can do with your buildings if the society around you is crumbling. So it is, for instance, a hedge of uh, purchasing power if all other factors around you in society are somewhat stable or there is a functioning level of society. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Immigrant Doctor podcast. I have with me Omar Khan. Uh, you know, we were a part of another mastermind and there that's where we connected. And I really jive with Omar. Um, I would like to introduce him to you because he is he's a beast at what he does and he's a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge. He really helped me guide uh, through my process and my journey. And I decided I'll bring him on and kind of have him uh, discuss uh, inflation and how it's impacting us in real estate investments and how it's impacting us overall. So I'll just briefly introduce him to you. So Omar is a founder and principal of Boardwalk Wealth. It's a Dallas-based private equity firm, and it helps international investors invest in U.S.-based uh, multifamily assets. Uh, he has actually managed over $350 million of real estate uh, in transactions, and he has advised on about $4 billion, that's with billion with a B, in capital financing and m and transactions in commercial real estate commodities. He is also an exclusive advisor for high net worth families and international entrepreneurs on their U.S.-based real estate portfolio. Welcome, Omar. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, And I really appreciate it. Yeah, so, you know, let's just dive into this because I think what's happened is that uh, over the last few years, this inflation was kind of creeping into all of our investments, our, our, our society overall. And I figured we should talk about that because recently the Fed has taken these uh, stringent methods or stringent, uh, you know, strategic positions to kind of help curb the inflation. So I figured let's just talk about yeah. this so that uh, we understand how it affects us as a society and affects us as investors. So, so let's just start with what exactly is inflation. I just want to break it down for for people because we, you know, we hear the word "oh, inflation is is this percent, that percent." But what does that really mean? So, look, uh, Abhishek, um, <laughs> inflation. Think of this as a general increase in price, right? Or another way, it's a fall in your purchasing power. So, the same dollar uh, buys less today than it bought. Uh, yesterday, as an example. So that's an example of inflation, right? If you could, with say a dollar. Um, well, not maybe not maybe the dollar. Okay, maybe it's five dollars. If right. you could buy a loaf of bread <laughs> a year ago, and now the same loaf of bread is say six dollars, well, that's an example of inflation. In this case, it'd be a twenty percent inflation, which is very high, but it's still an infl- example of inflation, right? The dollar value, which is basically your purchasing power, that's going down basically. I see. So, so is it good or is it bad? I mean, well, I mean, it's both. Uh, in fact, it depends if you manage it, right? Look, think about it this way. Everybody thinks inflation is bad, but we'll, we'll not go to the extreme of inflation. We'll look at deflation, right? When there is a persistent decrease in prices, persistent decrease in prices is actually bad, contrary to what people think. Think about it this way. If you, for instance, know that, look, you and your wife, right? You guys decide you guys want to buy a car for your family, right? And you've done your research. You decided what, like, two or three models you want to look at. You go to the showroom, try them out. And you're like, okay, I want to buy a car. But for sure, if you knew that next month the price of that car would be lower, you would not buy it today. That's right? true. Now, but on your personal expectation across the entire economy, right? To say, okay, well, if everybody thinks prices are going to be lower or the value of something is going to be lower, well, no commercial activity will take place. 
right? Or or very reduced commercial activity will play, take place only in the form of an emergency, right? You really need a car, otherwise there's no way. So deflation, which is the opposite of inflation, that's also not very good to spur uh, econom economy, right? To spur commerce, to have people interacting with each other. A manageable amount of inflation, uh, and again, this 2% number that the Fed is chasing, this is completely arbitrary. There is no science behind it. There is no there is no rationale behind it. This is a number they completely pulled out of thin air 50, 60 years ago, and now they're just stuck to it because they can't change the goal, right? So look, a manageable amount of, say, inflation uh, within reason, say, let's assume it's a 2% number, that's healthy. Now, people might not think about it, but it is. Think about it this way. Again, you are now buying this car, right? And you're on the fence about it. You want it. It offers you utility. But if you know, and assuming you have the money, you can afford all of that stuff, right? You know that in a year's time, this car will be more expensive than what you're doing right now. Or the house that you're trying to buy, or the stocks that you're trying to buy, whatever investment you're trying to do, right, will be more expensive in a year than now, then there's a very high chance that you will be spurred to incur some level of economic activity, right? So again, it's like all other things in life, right? Will eating McDonald's once in your life kill you? No. If you eat McDonald's every day, yeah, there's a pretty good chance you're going to die an early death, right? It's the exact same principle. A little bit is needed to spur economic activity, but again, if it goes to the extreme inflation or deflation, then then that causes a big problem. So, so in a way that that's basically causes the economy to move is uh, the inflation, right? But then, well, that's one of the theories, right? It's not the only reason, but it's a it's one of the many factors that are cited for having some manageable level of uh, inflation, basically. Got it. And so, so in terms of the last few years that we've seen that it suddenly became rampant, or I guess it was always yeah. rising and it suddenly came to notice. Uh, what do you think caused all of this to occur, and and what you know what what are we why, and why did the government have to step in or the Fed have to step in to kind of control it? Well, look, there's two types of inflation, right? Demand pull and cost push, right? So demand pull is think about it this way, right? There is a finite amount of again we're using that car example, right? Toyota Corolla, we're not going to go Bentleys or whatever, right? There is a finite exam there is a finite supply of Toyota Corollas, right? Even if Toyota wants to produce a billion Toyota Coronas a year. If their factories can only produce 10 million, that's it. They cannot produce more. It's it's a it's a structural constraint, right? So for instance, you can go and give an order of a billion Toyota Corollas to Toyota. They just can't fulfill your order, right? So in demand pool inflation is basically when demand is more, but you know, there's only a finite amount of supply, right? So then what will a supplier do? A supply, Not a supplier, what will the price happen? The price will go up because if there is more demand, there's a finite or less supply, price goes up, right? Conversely, cost pushes, for instance, when the cost of producing something goes up. So think about it this way, if the price of oil goes up, why is that a net negative a lot of times for all other sectors of the economy? Because Oil and hydrocarbons are the energy unit input into pretty much everything we do, right? So whether it is making shoes, manufacturing widgets, driving your car, you know, constructing, whatever. If the price of oil goes up, the cost of creating something goes up. And now, obviously, if the producer of that cost, the supplier of this, if his costs have gone up, if he can pass on those costs, he will pass it on. So something that costs you $10 last year, if the cost has gone up, the other guy also has to maintain his margin, right? It's not like his margin is going to go down. Right. Yes, he can, right? Then instead of $10, next year the thing might be $12. So there's two types of inflation, cost pull, cost pull and demand, uh, demand pull and cost push. Now the issue is, 
a lot of this inflation is coming because in again there's many factors for it right but an immediate obvious factor right now that a lot of people are looking at is in the last administration when covid happened they printed something like 33 35 i mean i don't know the exact number 33 35% of the entire money supply in america's history so think about it 270 odd years of this country being number 1 and all the money they printed the government in the last administration in one year printed 33% plus of that wow now think about it this way again in the example that we gave earlier right if the amount of bills like money supply in the in the country increases right and if it increases by 33% well this just means each dollar has less value right because now there's more of a supply of dollars right so in that particular regard what's happened is the government there's two issues here right one is the federals of raising rates right now they can do it through multiple means but the government has printed a lot of money now they're trying to play catch up so the fed is increasing the rates to curb demand because how do they curb demand basically through unemployment if less more people are unemployed it's a it's a fed with more people are unemployed there's going to be less demand well the problem is on the other side the federal government is running a deficit which means that they are consuming more than they are producing right it's a bit like somebody's is maxing out their credit cards so on one side you have the federal reserve which is saying here we're going to crush employment make it go unemployment so that demand goes down on the other side the federal government is running a deficit and demand is going up yes. so it's kind of like a drunkard right uh, <laughs> he's really trying to solve a problem here right yeah, so that's essentially what that happened one there are many reasons the big issue is the increase in the money supply and then the tussle of sorts i mean it's not obvious between what the federal reserve is trying to do and what the federal government is doing basically right 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 and it's interesting and and what impact is it have having on uh, uh you know on our livelihood on a day to day basis i mean we're talking about you know printing and and giving trillions of dollars i mean for us yeah. we can't even comprehend i cannot even comprehend how many zeros are there in a trillion <laughs> yeah So, so how does it impact What? me, or how does it impact you as as we're living our lives? It impacts you in the sense that if you are if you are heavily reliant on earned income, as an example, uh, you are say a good a good portion or some significant portion of the wealth you create every year is derived from employment in some shape or form, right? Well, if you were making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars as a doctor, right? Hopefully, you're making more, right? that the value of that 3 45000 in terms of what you can buy right because eventually it's not the money it's what you can buy with the money right what does it get you right well if you could buy x amount of things with say 3 45000 now you can buy x minus something with that 3 4 so your purchasing power is going down every year your purchasing power is going down So in the last year, as an example, I think the inflation was nine or ten percent. So if your income did not go up by nine or ten percent, you are in effect actually going back. Right, and 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 it's important to understand that you know even for high net worth people who may have savings and who are who are not, you know, who are not essentially not living paycheck to paycheck and they're saving. So that what that means is that their savings or whatever they're able to invest goes down because of this rise in inflation and rise in the costs. Yes, essentially, it, that's what it is. But but what does it mean for us as investors? How does that impact us as investors? It for Dan depends on what you're investing in. If you're investing in real estate, as an example, this means that 
if you look at things in isolation, well, things are never in isolation, right? right? Because real estate is affected by many factors. But if you just look at inflation in isolation and nothing else, there's no Federal Reserve Bank, there's no government, none of that stuff, right? Just in isolation, things cost more. So a 70s, 60s vintage asset that should really have only costed thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars per unit a year ten years ago now cost a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a unit, and people still buy it because it is still a good value relative to their other options. Right. Right. So in this case, basically, if you're an employee, if you make money uh, through labor, like you hours you work, money you get, you are basically a loser in the system. Right, and so so it kind of becomes like uh, arbitraging what you have versus you know what what that that thing makes you right. So it's uh, when we're yeah, doing our W two, we're arbitraging our time for our money, but yeah. in investments, we're arbitraging money for a higher return on what that money can bring us. Potentially uh, higher. Return. Potentially, potentially, yes, I, I agree. Potentially, so we're projecting things, and we're uh, you know we're we're under, understanding how the mechanics work and. So we project that we're going to get a higher return based on the money that we are we are investing into an asset. Uh, and or what? Or you are also assuming is that inflation persists in nominal terms, not in real terms. Nominal means just one, two, three, four. Real means hey, if I could buy a basket of goods next one year, can I buy the same basket of goods? So in nominal terms, think about it this way, man. In nominal terms, if inflation was a hundred percent, so every year price is down, right? In nominal terms you would have crazy returns. You understand? Like every year, you, some, you bought something, it doubled in value the next year, doubled in value again, doubled in value again. So on paper, it seems like, think about the Zimbabwe dollar, right? We've all heard it, they had a trillion dollar bill, right? In nominal terms, you have like a one billion IRR, right? But in real terms, you couldn't probably even buy a loaf of bread with that money. So that's now you have to think about it. Interesting, interesting. And so it's not what it's not the, the the dollar value that sits in the bank. It's what it can buy for you, right? That's what matters. Essentially, that's look. It's any bill, whether it's dollar, rupees, pound sterling, euros, yen, yuan. It is basically a proxy for hey, tomorrow if I have this this bill in my hand and I want to go feed my family, I want to go buy something, I want to buy a ticket to Europe. What can I buy with this? Because in isolation, a bill is nothing. Like you've got a $100 bill here, right? This bill, if I just give you this bill, which I'm not going to do because I like money, right? <laughs> if I give you this bill and let's assume, uh, United, let's assume you lived on Mars, right? This bill is meaningless to you. This is just a piece of paper, right? It's what do you buy with this piece of paper that's important. Right, 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 and and it's a, it's an interesting concept to understand uh, n- more from a philosophical point of view as well. Is that you oh, know? Don't worry, it's not philosophy when you're losing purchase power. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I, I was going to say that 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 when you talk about money, it kind of you know there's a lot of um, a lot of emotion that goes with money, right? And a lot of people yeah. kind of focus on money, but it's not necessarily about the dollar value. It's about what the dollar brings to you in terms of the actual value, and and it's yeah. important to focus on that. Uh, you know, when you're when you're talking about money, but keeping philosophy aside, uh, I want to talk about you know a lot of times people say that oh, real estate is a hedge against inflation, and simply bullshit. <laughs> so let's talk about that. That why do you say it's it's bullshit? <laughs> because it's very it's very contextual, right? Think look, think about it this way, right? It can be a good hedge against inflation, right? But think about it this way: you have a lot of real estate and. Uh, you know, you're in 1979 Afghanistan, 
right? You own a lot of real estate in Kabul, right? And then the Soviets come in, right? And, you know, whatever things happen, right? Yeah, who gives a shit? There is no particular power. This thing has no money. There is nothing you can do with your building if the society around you is crumbling. So it is, for instance, a hedge of uh, purchasing power if all other factors around you in society are somewhat stable or there is a functioning level of society. For instance, it is not a good hedge of purchasing power, as an example, if, God forbid, you were a Jewish person and the Nazis were coming through and you owned all the real estate in your village or city, right? Because you can't just take it and run away, right? So, for instance, in that regard, if you are being persecuted and let's assume you had gold, right? Gold, I mean, this is love gold, right? You had gold, right? You can actually take it with you. There is some level of purchasing power left because if you are lucky enough to survive that persecution, right, that horrendous persecution, then you can take this money, you can take this asset and go somewhere. So it is a store of value if all the other things around you are functioning. If the society around you is not functioning, this whole myth of it being a store of value, it being this and that, that's just BS. It doesn't apply, basically. It's like any other business. You can have the greatest business in the world, but if you are living in a country or a society where that business cannot function, then... Well, 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 let's talk. Let, let's talk about you know real estate in in the U.S. Right, so U.S. is relatively a stable society, stable economy, um, in the way it is. Right, so so in the U.S., when we talk about it being a hedge against inflation, and I'm understanding what you're saying that you know buying a buying a building is essentially a storage of value. You've converted dollars into a building, right? But then also comes in the fact that you're getting cash flow from it, and I think if you look at it from that perspective, wherein you're raising the rents because the inflation has gone up, because you're having to pay more for whatever you're providing. Yeah. So then the te the tenants have to pay. So it's essentially the, the delta, the, the gap that you're making in between, right? So in- But this is also dependent on the fact that where did you buy the property? What price right. did you buy the property? For instance, if you bought the property in a 500 people town that had a factory and now the factory is gone. Right. It is not inflation. I'm sorry to tell you. You can raise the rents all you like. Nobody gives a <laughs> shit, right? So it is very, it is like a business. I think a lot of times real estate people have this myth or idea in their head that this is some special sauce that they have over here. This is like guys like any other business, right? You there are a lot of other factors. You can't just buy something in isolation, look at it. Think about it this way. You bought something in I don't know, the smallest, grimiest town, uh, poorest town in America. I don't think you have a good store of wealth, basically. That's true. That is true. I agree with you there. Sure, basically. My, and think about it this way, right? You're from India, right? If you bought, say, a property in Bombay or Delhi even 20 years ago, right? Even with the Indian rupee devaluing, you would have made way more money than you would have bought in, say, some poor down middle of nowhere down in America that had no growth. That is true. That is true. And right? so, so we need fact, to buy right. If you right. bought property up there in Delhi, you'd be rich, man. Who gives a shit? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. you got to buy right. That is That is absolutely correct. You're spot on. Uh, when you say, you know, that's what we talk about, choosing the right market, um, you know, seeing where the trends are and buying based on that. Uh, I was just talking more in terms of all of that has been taken into account. And then you've kind of, you've done your homework, you've bought the property, you've brought, bought the, the, the asset where you project, you know, the population is growing, the market is robust, you're seeing the economy growing and booming in that microeconomy. And again, you know, that's the beauty of real estate is that one 
particular sub pocket is very different from the next sub pocket. One city is very different from the next city, right? And even when the, within the same state, you can have uh, you know different different small towns which may be growing, which may be actually declining. And so buying right is very important. But I'm saying, assuming that you've bought right, assuming that you've bought where there's a lot of good robust econ- economic activity happening, and in that sense, like I'm taking, I'm saying that that's all accounted for. You bought it right. But now, uh, you know, say say you bought it in, say, 2018, 2019, right? All of the trends were doing well, but the inflation kept going up. In that sense, uh, even though you bought it right, now that inflation will probably not affect you as much because you invested your money and you're able to kind of, you because you're living on that arbitrage, you're living on that, you're getting the cash flow is that delta, right? So so you would still be able to do what you're doing, which we saw, right? The, the, the rents went up drastically in the last two, three years. Uh, and yeah, because a lot of that was because of the amount of money that was printed in the economy, right? Right. So, I mean, I mean, regardless, so, so if you're, if you're, if you're, putting in your time, right, to gain the money, yeah. you're losing money. But if you're having these investments uh, that are there, that are done right, you can still kind yeah. of offset some of the effects of inflation, assuming everything, okay. assuming the world is not crumbling around you. <laughs> yeah. Look, yes and no. Again, my point is, I, I've been on a lot of these talks and panels, and somehow I get the feeling real estate, people think real estate is special and everything else is just whatever. And again, there's many there's many contexts to it. Again, you could buy right, but if you didn't finance right, that's right? true. A lot of guys right now have great assets right now. They they have pushed up the rents. They just can't refinance out of their assets. My point is, it's such a multifaceted beast. That's true. That that old adage and theory of oh, it's a store of value. Yeah, that stuff doesn't really apply anymore because we're in a much more complex world. Right? Things change uh, very quickly, which they weren't. It wasn't happening in this space earlier. So a lot of times, I feel people just are enamored with this idea and they learn the hard way that things aren't really the way they think they are. No, I, I think I think I'm glad I'm talking to you about this because, you know, this is uh, this is an important concept to understand that, you know, it is like running any business. And the way I see now is that um, like any business, it thrives on its cash flow and thrives on the way it, it does its day-to-day activities, right? And so buying real estate in itself is a business. It's very different from, you know, say when I was a kid, when I came from India, the concept of buying was you buy it cash and it's like a store of value like we were discussing, right? But instead of that, look, we need to look at it as a business that's making revenue, that's generating revenue. And once you get that point of view of it generating revenue, there are so many nuances to it, right? And the whole way of doing business has also changed, or at least I think it's probably changes because now we're we're leveraging, we're 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 using we're using loans, we're using you know other lending services available to us so that we can scale faster. So these are different facets facets that come into play uh, into into buying a real estate. So it's not as simple as going and buying a property. It's it's more of a business that you're buying, and so you have to strategize like a business. How will you grow that business? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a very multifaceted, nuanced thing. So uh, that's why. I mean, if the answers were easy, we'd all be rich. <laughs> That's true. That is true. That is true. So, so um, Omar, how did you change your strategy when you saw these changes occurring in the market? You know, the Fed raising its interest rates and the, you know, these loans for a lot of people, were, which will be coming due or are already coming due. How, are, how did you change your strategy or how did you anticipate uh, things will change uh, for you? Strategy of Ishkan hasn't really changed. We are still buying the similar type of product. For us, the biggest thing is demo, uh, demos or other demographics. 
which essentially is a fancy way of saying, look, how much is the median income somebody's paying in the area? What is the stability of their jobs? or the economy looks like, right? Uh, what we're looking for is family-oriented neighborhoods or some markets, great schools, ideally. They have to be at least seven, six to seven out of 10 minimum. Ideally, the higher is better, right? And we're obviously looking for a level of mismanagement, right? So for us, high-level-wise, operationally, the strategy has not changed. It's always, I mean, because again, we play in a little box, right? I'm not doing... Um, self-storage, industrial, rather, right? So there's not like five verticals. So for us, the strategy really hasn't changed. Now, obviously, we are not immune to what's happening in the market, right? So we have to adapt with the times. But overall, the factors we look at, the types of properties we look at, the types of places and sub-markets we look at, that really hasn't changed. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you, you bring out a very important point, and that's key to understand like you said, you have a small box that you're in, right? And so it's important to have a small box when you're investing because you become the expert in that box, right? And I'm sure you're not investing all over the US. You have a few markets that you're focused on, right? So so it becomes so important because you are so focused on the local factors that come into play, which is very important in real estate is have, understanding the local, uh, the market forces that are there. So you, you, you are actually focused on it so you know what's changing and so you can anticipate the changes right and so so yeah. that's so important to understand uh instead of you know like going broad and going into 10 different directions where you will not really get much success and yeah look i mean again it's a business issue right we, we don't have the right staff in every place even if you have a good deal say in a uh, denver or a uh, oregon or a uh, I don't know, Kansas City. I don't have staff in that place. I don't want to start from scratch. So uh, I have to folk, I have to pick and choose my battles. It doesn't mean those markets aren't great. It just means that you can't do everything at the same time. That's true. That is true. No, this is very cool. And and also the fact, you know, that a good investor will always invest regardless of what the market is doing. It's just the way you invest, the tools that you use to invest change. Like we like you had mentioned that there's so many facets to uh, to an investment, to running it as a business, and there are so many levers that you can pull, right? So your you we change our strategies based on what the market is doing, and that's just because of the knowledge that we have regarding this. Yeah, no, I agree with you, hundred percent. Very cool, man. Very cool. So, how can people get in touch with you, Omar? How can they invest with you? Well, that's really very very simple, man, and I'm glad you asked me this question. So you can join my mailing list by visiting my website, boardwalkwealth.com. The form is right on the homepage. Again, that's at boardwalkwealth.com. Very cool, very cool. So it was very nice having you on, Omar. Thank you so much for sharing all, all your insight. And, you know, it's so nice to have you in my corner because you really, really shared a lot of information that was really, really useful to me when I was getting started on what we were talking about two months ago. And, man, it's yeah. been phenomenal. Thank you so much. Well, Beautiful, man. I don't want you making the same mistakes I made. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.